Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ray Stewart. I'm the Connections Pastor here, and uh, I'm excited that, that if you're new here and visiting, hopefully I've had the chance to meet you, but I hope you felt welcome this morning uh, as you've joined us for worship, and thanks. Uh, if you're joining us online, we're glad that we're able to worship together. Uh, we would love to help you take your next step, whatever that might be, uh, here at the church in terms of, of getting connected or growing in your uh, passionate pursuit of Christ, uh, and whether that's joining a grow group or a community group, we're constantly launching those throughout the year. So we would love to chat with you. So today we're going to get started and we're going to play uh, a little game. And so I need you, everybody kind of, you know, loosen up a little bit. I need some audience participation. Uh, and I know it's uncomfortable for some of us uh, to, to vocalize something in church, but, uh, but hopefully this is going to be fun. So we're going to play a game of real or fake. And I'm going to show you a picture. Uh, all right, they're giving you the picture quick. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture, and you have to tell me whether it's real or fake. This is a rabbit. This is really a rabbit, yes. Uh, this is an Angora rabbit. It's one of the earlier uh, domesticated breeds of rabbits. Uh, they get to be like t 10 to 12 pounds, and they're bred for their wool. So, uh, yeah, that's a lot. There is a rabbit hiding in there someplace. A giant rubber duck. Is this real or fake? I hear more fakes than real, I think. So this is real. This, uh, a Dutch artist by the name of uh, Florentin Hoffman creates these temporary sculptures uh, of giant ducks in, uh, on water. And so even in 2013, this is not a picture, of, I think, of that, but in 2013, he did, he did one in Pittsburgh. So this is totally real. All right, next one. So this is a picture of um, soldiers from the 1930s and of a soldier doing the dab. So uh, some of you may not know what the dab is. Cam Newton popularized it uh, back many... Oh, I got some examples up here. So uh, is this real or fake? Yeah, this is fake. Um, this is a picture of uh, the filming of the movie Dunkirk. Uh, in 2016, in one of the cast photos, uh, one of the cast uh, did the dab. All right, Justin Risser's in here. Uh, so Justin's going to be our judge uh, of a cow trying to get warm, and he climbed on top of a car. Is this real or fake? This is fake. This is fake. Justin, could any of your cows do this? No. Yeah, the car's not. Daryl got it. The car's not, not leaning enough, right? Um, yeah, so this is fake, photoshopped in. Uh, the cow's in nice green prairie in, in reality. All right, staying with the bovine family, uh, is this real or fake? I'm not hearing many answers. The one, <laughs> you guys don't trust me. No, this is real, right? So a couple people said fake. This is real. Uh, this uh, steer's name was Lurch. Uh, he lived from 1985 to uh, 1995 to 2010, um, he set the Guinness World Record for the biggest circumference uh, of horns at 38 inches, uh, and his horns were eight feet from tip to tip. So, uh, yeah, this one's real. I thought at first when I saw it, it was a perspective issue, but no, it, it's, it's really that big. All right, la uh, last one. Uh, BJ's in here this time, and so this is a cyclist uh, being chased by a bear, uh, B, BJ could probably tell us whether he rides fast enough to be real or fake. I heard reels. 
So it's fake. Yeah, the bear was running on the road and the bicyclist was photoshopped in. So, um, so BJ, I think you're safe. You don't have to worry about being chased by a bear. Um, thanks for everybody for participating, that you were good sports. With today's technology, you can do anything to photos, right? You can, you can make something that looks completely fake uh, be real. Like that rubber duck picture would be easy to fake in photoshopping a rubber ducky into, uh, into a water picture. You know, Instagram uh, can uh, remove the circles below your eyes and smooth out your complexion and hide blemishes. Um, but long before technology allowed us to change what people saw in the digital world, we are, have been experts at hiding and showing a mask to others, hiding what's really going on in, our, in the physical world. We put a smile on and we pretend that we're okay when, when we're anything but, because you're supposed to be okay. You're supposed to be happy. And so we, we fake it until we make it. So today in 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at where does our joy come from? And I want to start you off with a beautiful truth uh, that, that is kind of really the foundation for today's sermon, is whatever's going on in your life, whatever you have experienced in life, you can have real joy. It's available to you. God wants you to experience joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that in you we have living hope and in you we can have joy. Lord, today I know there are people listening, whether online or here in person, that, that are truly struggling in trials. Lord, they're tired and they're worn out, they're hurting. But Lord, I know that you want us to find rest in you and despite our circumstances, you want us to find joy in you. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to our hearts, drawing us close to you. Lord, help us to... Uh, to marvel at how much you love us. It's in your name. Amen. So how can we have joy? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. This, uh, verses will be on the screen. Uh, we're reading from the ESV. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about that grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he pre predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things to which angels long to look. So in verse six, it starts off with, and it says the simple phrase, in this, right? And this in this uh, phrase connects what's happened before in verses three through five, what Peter has said to what he's gonna say in the verses that we're, we're looking today. Peter's writing to Christians, he's writing to believers that have made Jesus the Lord of their life. And so uh, the in this includes in verse three, where he says that uh, they've been born again, they've been made new in Jesus. They've been given a living hope uh, through the resurrection. 
Uh, in verse 4, it says that they have an imperishable inheritance. And in verse 5, it says that their salvation is guarded by the power of God. So Peter is saying, in these things, you rejoice, right? And so he, he's making an observation. Uh, when, I, when I read scripture, I'm constantly looking for action statements, right? Action statements that I can apply uh, in my life. And in this one, the, the term or the phrase, you rejoice, is not a command, it's not something that's saying you need to try harder, you need to will it to happen. He's, Peter's actually just making an observation of a present reality in the believers that he's writing to. He says, in these things, you are rejoicing because of the hope you have in Jesus, because of the salvation that you have in Jesus, you rejoice, you have joy. Something that took me many years to learn uh, or to come to grips with, was that God has not designed the relationship that we have with him to be a stoic and emotionless engagement. He wants us to have joy in him. There's something for us to enjoy about having a relationship with God. And so here's some verses. Psalm 34, 8, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. John 10, 10 says, Jesus came that we might have life uh, and have it abundantly. And in John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, he offers her living water. And he says that whoever drinks, whoever drinks it will have a wellspring of water welling up to eternal life. These are good things, right? We're supposed to enjoy and have joy in our relationship with God. So in verse 6, it says, in this you are to have joy. He is saying that we, or in this you rejoice. He's saying we are to have joy. But honestly, most of us put on the masks, right? Most of us, when we came here this morning, uh, we put on a mask. Everything could be falling apart in our lives, but the person that's sitting in front of us or behind us is never going to know because we've hidden it. So today, we're to find joy in the Lord. Where does it come from? How does our joy grow? If you're in a funk, how do you get out of the funk? If you're, if you're facing trials and challenges right now that are wearing you down, how do you have joy? So we're gonna look at three things. First, we can have joy because we grow through trials. We grow through trials. Joy comes from the testing of our faith. Look again in verse six, right? After the introductory statement that we just covered, he says that now for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. Matt covered this last week. He did a masterful job. So please go back and listen to the sermon last week on, on the trials that we experience. But Peter's acknowledging Right? Peter's acknowledging that we face trials, significant trials, trials that bring suffering and pain and difficulty. He calls it grieving. And the trials that we experience are not easy, but verse 7 points us to some hope. Right? In verse 7, he points us to hope in the trials. He says, though you suffer in trials, right? we have the tested genuineness of your faith. Right? This is a result. This is an outworking of the trials. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is in complete control and that he loves us. We believe that God never makes mistakes and he is never surprised by what happens in our lives. Those are foundational truths for us that when we are suffering in trials, that can be a soothing balm to the raggedness and the roughness of our suffering. 
had a gentleman this week text me uh, that he didn't get a job that he was going for this week. And he was, I, I, I sent back and said, hey, I'm sorry. I'm glad you are where you are. And he's, his response to me really kind of floored me in that he said, you know, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, it takes rejection. It makes rejection a little easier to take because you believe that God is doing and knows what he's doing and has you right where he wants you. But this is another foundational truth that can, be, uh, that, that can offer us comfort, that through whatever trial, whatever suffering we experience, whether we ever know the exact reasons for those trials and suffering, we can know that in those trials and suffering, God is testing our faith. He's refining our faith. He compares it in verse 7 that to gold, the gold that is refined and purified by fire. And the comparison is that our faith is refined and purified and tempered by the fire of trials. And the result, what comes out of that fire at the end of verse 7, right, is the praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ. Right, this is how Romans puts it in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. In James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I can promise you that you will never know all the reasons for the suffering and the trials that you experience. You will never know all that God is doing or all that, God is, <clears throat> all that God is accomplishing. But do know that God is using the trials to temper your faith. One commentator called it the crucible of our faith. The trials are to draw us closer to him, to depend upon him. Years ago, uh, more than a decade, so I'm aging myself a little bit, uh, Morgan loves music. And one of her favorite artists is Michael W. Smith. I am horrible at music. I uh, can't carry a tune to save my life. I'm painfully tone deaf, and I can't remember, music, uh, remember songs uh, for the life of me. But I can remember we went to this Michael W. Smith concert, and his opening act uh, was Laura's Story. And I remember her songs more than I do Michael W. Smith's. Um, they just stuck with me. And that night she, she was talking about, she was sharing a story about how her husband had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And in their journey, uh, their journey, they prayed that God would heal it because they said, God is able. And they prayed and they prayed and God never healed him. And then they wrestled with him. She wrestled with him, went through a long period of questioning God, wanting to know why, saying, God, why didn't you fix it? You're all powerful and all loving, just fix it. And he didn't just fix it. And so in 2011, she wrote her song, Blessings, and this is one of the, the choruses uh, or one of the verses, and I promise I won't sing it uh, to save everybody uh, that painful experience. It says, what if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain and the storms and the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise? 
God uses the trials that we grow through to draw us closer to him, to remind us that he is the absolute only one who will never fail us, that will never disappoint. He's the only one that we can completely depend upon. And through the testing of our faith, we can have joy even while we're grieving, even while we're suffering in sadness, because we know that God, God is still on his throne and he loves us and he's working even when we can't see it. So we grow through the testing of our faith. We also grow, how do we grow, our joy grow? It's very simple, we love Jesus. I felt, I, I'll be honest, when I wrote this, I was like, okay, this is a little, this, this is a little too simplistic. It's Sunday school uh, answered every single question, right? Love Jesus. But loving Jesus brings an inexpressible joy. Let's look at verses eight and nine. And, and Peter uh, is describing, he says, you have not seen him, and yet you love him. You never knew him, and yet you believe him. Again, just like in verse 6, where it says you rejoice, these are not commands. These are not imperatives that, that Peter is giving to, to the audience, to, the, to those that he's writing to, or to us. Uh, these are not commands to love and to believe. It's not something they have to, uh, to try harder at. These are indicative. They're an observation about who these people are, that they love Jesus. And they're going through trials, that though they are going through trials, they love and they believe in Jesus. And so they are able to rejoice and be joyful. Now, Peter knew Jesus. He lived with him. He walked with him. He listened with him. listened to him. He slept beside him. Peter loved Jesus because he knew that even though he denied knowing Jesus three times uh, on the night that he would be crucified, Jesus restored him and forgave him for failing. But Peter is writing to churches that are full of people just like us, people that have never physically set their eyes on Jesus, people that have never heard him teach in person or saw him perform a miracle, people that, that were not at his death and resurrection. We didn't get to see him uh, on that Sunday morning. He's writing to people that are experiencing real and painful trials and suffering just like some of us are. And Peter's observation in, these, in verses 7 and 8 is that, they, that love for Jesus, their love for Jesus produces joy. And it's a present joy, right? It, it's, a, it's a joy that uh, in verse 8, uh, the, that... It's the joy that's inexpressible. It's a present joy. It's not a future joy, right? When we go through trials, the testing of our faith, often we get to look forward to the day where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more sickness, no more death. We get to look forward to that day in heaven where there will be no more injustice. That's a future joy. But this joy, this inexpressible joy is a present joy. It's a today joy. And he's saying it's inexpressible. So the joy described in verse 8 is a little bit different than the joy he describes in verse 6. As you, go through, uh, the, as you go through trials, you're looking forward to a heavenly reward. But in verse 8, this joy, this inexpressible joy, is something that's continual and it's ongoing. It's rooted in our daily relationship with Jesus. A few months ago, um, a gentleman within the ministry, I was talking to him on Sunday morning, and he had started to travel again for work. Uh, and I said, I, we, he was just sharing about his trip. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And I turned to his wife and I asked, I said, does he call you every day? And she turned to her husband with adoring eyes and, and a smile on her face and said, he does really well. And I, that's this, this idea that, that they spend every day together. And even when they're apart, they're still together. They're still communicating and still close. And this is the idea, or this is a picture of what it means to passionately pursue Jesus. It's a daily thing. It's not something that we just do on Sunday morning, though Sunday mornings are incredibly important as we worship together. But it is a daily talking to him, a daily praying, a daily reading the Bible. Passionately pursuing Jesus may mean putting down Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Reddit or YouTube. Nine time, probably nine times out of 10, what you're gonna find in social media isn't gonna, isn't gonna be joy. It's gonna be bitterness it's going to be anger. It's going to be jealousy. It's going to be people biting and devouring one another. I'm on social media, so I'm not saying that you can't be. But on social media, you'll find lies that the enemy wants you to believe that you aren't pretty enough, that you aren't loved enough, that you're worthless, or that life isn't worth living. You're not going to find joy there. Where will we find joy? We will find joy in loving Jesus more by knowing him, by focusing our mind and our hearts on him. This is why the habits that we shared at the beginning of the year in the discipleship journey, why we believe they are so important. Guys, go ahead and throw up the next screen for the discipleship journey. These are the daily habits that we do, the weekly habits that, that we, where we come together, where we study the Bible and we pray, we confess sin, we serve one another. These habits helped us to focus our minds and our hearts on him. We're two weeks into the year. Uh, maybe you set a New Year's resolution uh, two weeks ago and you've already kind of let it fall to the side. If you're smart like me and you just don't set New Year's resolutions because if you don't set them, you can't fail. <laughs> um, but today is a fresh day. And today is an opportunity to, to look at our relationship with God again and fresh and say, what do I need to work on? How do I need to grow? Not because the work brings the joy, but it's being in relationship and drawing close to God, right? Reading your Bible every day is not gonna make God love you more than he does. He already loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And his love for you is never gonna be more than it is today. But because of that, we draw close to him through his word, and reading and praying. You know, doing these habits, the Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags, that the best that we can do is never gonna be good enough or measure up. But in grace, we can come to him. And so the challenge today is which of these habits do you need to work on? Which of these habits do you need to, to work on so that you can focus your mind and your heart on him? Maybe it's uh, starting a Bible reading plan. Maybe it's joining a community group or a grow group. And we'll be happy to help you with that. There's resources on the website at mtcalvarychurch.com. If you go to Next Steps and then you go to Habits of a Disciple, there's resources for Bible reading plans, how to pray, how to, uh, uh, and links to join a group or, or talk to one of the staff. Our joy grows through our trials as our faith is tested. Our joy grows as we learn to love Jesus more and more. And then our last point that we want us to look at is our joy grows as we marvel at our salvation. Joy can be found in the incomparable grace of Jesus' salvation. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. 
It starts off in verse 10. It says, concerning the salvation, right? The salvation uh, that he's talked about, right? In verse nine, the salvation of our souls. He says, concerning the salvation, this is the salvation that we find in Jesus alone. It's been revealed to us, right? In verse 11, it's been revealed to us through the suffering of Christ, through his death, his burial, his resurrection. And this is salvation that's been revealed to us is something that the prophets, right? In verse 10, it's something that the prophets prophesied about. It's something that in verse 11, they inquired about. In verse 10, they searched and inquired about. It's something that they, as they served God, they followed God with the future promise that the Messiah, that the Savior was to come. They longed for it. And the people that Peter's writing to and us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's something we've gotten to experience. That people in the Old Testament were only looking forward to, only hopeful to happen at some point. We've gotten to experience it. We've gotten to see the testimonies of Jesus' life through the Gospels. We've, it's been recorded, the prophecies from the Old Testament that he's fulfilled in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So I'm going to geek out for a minute, and so just, just bear with me. Uh, my undergraduate degree many years ago now uh, was in mathematics, uh, and so I, I can get a little geeky, but I couldn't help you if you have calculus homework, teenagers, not me, right? We got math teachers uh, in the congregation, or my wife can help you uh, because she's better. But in 1952, a mathematician, his name was Peter Stoner, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And one of the things that he did in the book, he, he did multiple things, but one of the things that he did in the book was he wanted to say, what's the probability of one person fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies? And so he started, he just looked at eight, right? And they're on the screen uh, in Micah 5.2, the, the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Malachi 3.1, the prophecy that there would be a messenger who would come before the Messiah, to prepare the way for him, right? This is John the Baptist. In Zechariah 9, 9, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. In Zechariah 13, 6, that he would be betrayed by a friend and suffer. In Zechariah 11, 12, that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah eleven thirteen, that the betrayal money, that that 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field. In Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah would remain silent while he suffered. And in Psalm twenty two sixteen, that the Messiah would die by having his hands and his feet pierced. These are just eight of what scholars say there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life and his death. Just eight. And so he calculated what he said was there's one in 10 to the 17th chances of a man fulfilling all eight. Not 300, just eight. This is one in 100 quadrillion. I can't even guarantee you that the number of zeros I have after that one are right. I mean, these numbers are too big for us to fathom. And that's just eight out of over 300 this is in verse 10, this is what the prophets, they prophesied about, what they longed, they searched, they inquired for. They longed to see. Only God can do that. From the beginning of time, before time began, God knew that man in the Garden of Eden would sin. They would fall short and that they would need a savior. 
And from before creation, God planned that Jesus would leave the wonder and the majesty of heaven and come into a dirty and fallen world, a world full of people whose hearts are deceitful and evil, us and everyone who's ever lived. And yet he came as a baby. He lived and walked among us for 30 years. He was tempted and yet did not sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life and died on, a cro- on the cross as an atonement, as a payment for our sin. That whoever believes in him, whoever cries out to him to forgive them of their sins, he would be faithful to forgive. He would, be, he would make them a new creation and give them new life, give them eternal life. That whoever believes in him and trusts in him as Savior and Lord would be given the gift of eternal life in heaven. Not on the basis of anything that they had done or earned or deserved, but solely and completely based on the life, death, and burial, or life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to marvel at our salvation that while God did not require, was not required to save anybody, he was not obligated, it wasn't forced upon him, he could have left us in deserving of judgment and wrath. He, was, he would be right and fair to do that. And yet he looked upon us and loved us while we were still in our sin, and Jesus came to die for us. He chose to come and die for us. Matt Chandler, a pastor, says it this way. He says, he chose to come and die for us that we would be freely and fully and forever forgiven. Freely, fully, forever forgiven. That's amazing. It's something we take for granted every single day, but, but every day we need to remember that I was not deserving and I, was not, I, was not, uh, I did not earn it. I did not, God did not have to save me, and yet he, out of his grace, he chose That is an amazing thing. And we invite you that if you've not experienced that freedom and salvation, the joy in coming to faith in Christ, then come find one of the staff. Ask the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you. He is the only source of enduring joy. Everything else in the world will disappoint. Nothing else will satisfy the longings of your heart. I promise. So we started the day by playing a little game called fake or real. A lot of us are really good at faking it. We can put a mask on. We can have a conversation. We can make the person that even we've known for for decades think that everything's going fine and everything could be falling apart. We're experts at faking it. But being a follower of Christ means we don't have to. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials and difficulties and sufferings. We're actually promised that we will. That's a great sales pitch. Come and follow Christ and suffer. But that's the reality. That's real. Peter is talking about fiery trials in this passage. And yet, through those things, we can have joy. We can have joy and we don't have to fake it. We might have to fight for it. We might have to work after chasing it. We got to make some choices. We have to repent of sin in our lives that might be holding us back, maybe a barrier to joy. We have to fight the lies that the enemy puts in our head constantly on a daily basis. We have to focus and remind ourselves of the foundational truths of who God is. I don't know where everybody in this room is today, or if you're online, I don't know where you are. 
Some of you are going to be struggling in hidden sin. Nobody knows, but God does. Some of you are going to be desperately fighting depression. Some of you are be wrestling with God with why something's happened. And some are going to be lost in hopelessness of the world. Today, you can have joy. And today, know that you don't have to walk alone. That's why he's given us the body, the church, the family together to walk together through those things. But today you can have joy by growing through your trials, by loving Jesus and marveling at the salvation that he's freely given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you that, that in you we can have joy. Lord, it's not always easy, and sometimes we can be joyful and sad at the same time, and we don't understand, but, but God, we, we trust you, and we follow after you. God, I know what it's like to hurt, and I know what it's like to be discouraged, and Lord, I thank you that you remind me of your faithfulness and your love and your grace. Lord, I pray that you help Help me and help everybody here listening today. Lord, help us to continually be amazed and in awe of your choice to love us. Lord, I pray that anybody that is in a dark space today, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be a comforter to them and that you would draw them to you. Lord, that they may start to see the joy that they can have even amidst their circumstances. God, you are good, you are perfect, and we trust in you. It's in your name.